today? It was January 6, 2022, precisely 495 days since Dirty Godfrey and Tarian Royal had that historic conversation via cell phone where they decided to start an internet syndicated commentary show which would pay tribute to the cinema they shared a mutual appreciation for. That sounds great. It was 476 days since the premiere of their first episode. Welcome to the very first episode of That's the Fucking Trailer in which the Killmonger incident would take place, nearly ending the duo before the show's one, premiere. I think he's one of the most fascinating villains that has ever been created because... <laughs> Afghanistan! It was seven days since Durden began waking startled nightly from fever dreams with confusing visions. That was startling. And it was exactly 17 seconds before Durden would understand their meaning and announce that he had something spectacularly mundane, which he would imminently unveil. January 6th. I have something spectacularly mundane which I will imminently unveil. Royal was understandably perplexed by the duality of Durden's description, so he requested elaboration. I request elaboration. But Durden was a lover of mystery and a practitioner of suspense. You'll see. Okay. I've been waking in the night from fever dreams and confusing visions. I've only just realized what they mean. What do they mean? You'll see. First, we need supplies. A hardback copy of A Haunted Woman by James Oliver Kerwood, a porcelain angel crying tears of blood, a Mercury satellite camera, model 127, a photo of you and your daughter, the one with the My Prodigy inscribed on the frame, a gently used copy of The Office DVD board game, an NWA hat, black material, white letters, a human skull, a painting of a toilet pissing into a human mouth, a collage of my creations around a portrait of a face made up of my own and Elliot Smith's, given to me as a gift from my wife, a small figurine of Dwight Schrute, made in Vietnam, a small figurine of Moses parting the Red Sea, origin unknown, the dead shell of a locust in an old jewelry box, which I was given strict instructions to protect by my daughter, and two mugs, one displaying the artwork of Adeline Petlansky, don't you worry about the other one. So we have everything. What's the spectacular mundane thing you must show me? It was upon that line of questioning that Durden realized that the realization he only recently came to after nights of anguish had once again evaded him. Now swimming in a sea of abstract props with a co-host awaiting an answer he absolutely deserves, Durden responded in the only way he found to be acceptable. Oh fuck you. That's modern art. What the fuck is up, internets? We, we are back. Happy 2020, 2020, happy 2022 to you. Or as the kids call it, the deuce deuce of the century. We are coming to you from the past. Uh, we just saw the French Dispatch on November 12th at Sunray Cinema in beautiful Five Points, Jacksonville, Florida. 
Uh, we're shooting this just a few days later. What is it, November 14th for us right now? Remember, remember the month November. <laughs> uh, we wanted to get all of this, our feelings about this movie out while while they were still fresh on our uh, on our minds. So this is probably the longest time that we've had between uh, shooting something before it was scheduled to be released. Guys, please don't forget. Number one, subscribe. Hit that button. Hit that ding. Make yourself seen. And of course, <clears throat> if you're feeling really financially supportive, there's the good folks over at Patreon, where YouTube can subscribe. So guys, hey, support us one way or the other. All right, guys, there's a hell of a lot to get into. I've been waiting three seasons to do a Wes Anderson movie. Here we finally are. So let's just get straight into it. We do our research. This is every single thing that you need to know about the French Dispatch. The French Dispatch is Wes Anderson's love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine. The French Dispatch premiered at Cannes Film Festival in July of 2021, where it received a nine minute standing ovation and was released in the US on October 22nd. A little caveat to that nine minute standing ovation. There was uh, one particular salty motherfucker in the in the uh, trivia that contributed to the trivia on IMDb, IMDb that wanted to make sure that it was noted that that nine minute standing ovation was not truly a nine minute standing ovation because there were things taking place on the stage after the initial applause began, which prompted further applause and things continued to happen to keep the applause going and then it all concluded and the applause concluded shortly after so uh to give that one salty motherfucker there uh put that out there for them that it's not truly a nine minute standing ovation they they i think they just don't like wes anderson get it off your chest man <clears throat> films released around october of 2021 ron's gone wrong the harder they fall Halloween Kills. No time to die! Dave Chappelle's The Closer. Highly acclaimed. Uh, Venom. Let there be better reviews, but let there be carnage. And really, you're a little redundant there, Venom, with the let there be carnage. <laughs> Dave Chappelle's The Closer already came out. The carnage <laughs> like has already been let there been. I like that. Written and directed by Wes Anderson, this is Anderson's 10th film, preceded by Bottle Rocket in 1996. Listen, you don't need to sit down, but you can rush more, and that was in 1998. And then Royal Tenenbaums, 2001. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, 2004. The Darjeeling Limited, 2007. Fantastic Mr. Fox, 2009. Moonrise Kingdom, 2012. The Grand Budapest Hotel in 2014 and Isle of Dogs 2018, and he already has an 11th film with uh, all the familiar faces in post-production called Asteroid City. It's set to release in 2022. This is a quick turnaround for Wes Anderson. It would seem so if you're just looking at the years of the, re the releases of his films in 2021 to 2022, but <clears throat> uh, The French Dispatch was actually finished in 2018, but they held off on it to make to because he wanted to release it in theaters to do the traditional release so they waited the pandemic out and uh, did a theatrical run only limited so yeah so he's still sticking to his uh finishing something and then waiting two three two three four years before 
putting another one out. It was shot by Robert Yemen. This film is, I mean, talk about a who's who of a cast. This cast of the movie boasts seven Oscar winners and nine Oscar nominees, starting with Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Leah Sado, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, Jeffrey Wright, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, and I thought Angelica Houston missed this this project, but that was her voice that you heard in the voiceover narrating uh, the entire thing. Now, do you know that it was filmed in November of 2018? Where at? It was in Algamay. Chantre France. <laughs> I'm gonna do that one again. Yeah, hold on. I can't wait. I, we gotta at least and, try our and, best and effort go, on everyone for I the fuck-ups. I know. <laughs> I'm ready. Now, Durden, do you know it was filmed in November 2018? Yeah, why don't you make Margot proud and tell me where it was at? I Google it. Damn it, man! Dang. <laughs> don't know, I got I'm ready. David, did you know it was filmed in November 2018? That is very interesting. Where was it filmed at? Angula May, Charente, France. Hmm. That sounds right. And for all my people out there, again, that's Angula May, <laughs> Charente, France. Yeah, I'm hearing Charente. I'm seeing one G, I'm hearing Just two. One, one last <laughs> time. Angula Last May. time, last time. Now, David, now did you know that this actually uh, was actually filmed back in November of 2018? Hmm. Interesting. Where is it filmed at? Um, it's a certain part of France most people aren't familiar with. Angula May. Angula. Angola. Angola, man. I, 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 I know how I'm going to do it. Now, David, did yeah. you know this was filmed in November 2018? Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Where at? Angola, Mesh, France. Mm -hmm. A lot of people aren't familiar with that province, but, you know. I bet they aren't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, on its budget of $25 million, it made $1,348,000 during its opening weekend. And as of November 14th, it has made nearly $21 million worldwide, nearly recouping its budget in under a month since its limited release i want that to be clear it's not like some big marvel film all right guys you know what time it is it is time for the koc king of connections but you got a special special thing happening this week mr durden godfrey himself will be taking over and mr Royal is going to sit back and watch him connect take it away dave this is wes anderson's ninth collaboration with bill murray his eighth collaboration with Owen Wilson, his seventh collaboration with Jason Schwartzman, and that's keeping in mind that Wes Anderson has made uh, 10 films in total. Uh, you've heard about Bill Murray, his 1-800 number, right? To guess. Yes. Okay, so he makes it pretty much uh, impossible uh, to get in touch with him to, to pitch a project and po possibly meet with him if he decides to show up. Uh, the one caveat to that rule that he has is Wes Anderson, he said, just gets an automatic yes. It doesn't matter, like, he doesn't even have to ask. If Wes Anderson writes something that's gonna be making a movie, Bill Murray has given him, like, he'll be in it, essentially. Some real world connections. Uh, Bill, Bill Murray's author Howitzer Jr. was inspired by the New Yorker's founding editor, Harold Ross. Owen Wilson's Herb St. Sazerac was inspired by writer Joseph Mitchell. Adrian Brody's Julian Julian Cadazio was inspired by Lord Duveen. Jeffrey Wright's Roebuck Wright was inspired by James Baldwin and A.J. Liebling. And Francis McNorman's Lucinda Cremens was inspired by Mavis Gallant, who wrote the two-part 1968 piece of the uh, student uprisings in France. And my last connection is 006 in 007. Six people in the French Dispatch have direct ties to 007. Benicio Del Toro, Jeffrey Wright, Christoph Waltz, Matthew Almerich, and Leah Sadu. 
have appeared in at least one Bond film, and Jason Schwartzman is the son of Jack Schwartzman, who produced 1983's infamous Never Say Never Again. Those are the connections. You're welcome. Here are the top seven facts about the French Dispatch. Number seven, casting. According to Wes Anderson via a GQ interview, the role of Zeffirelli was written specifically for Timothy Chalamet. Chalamet, while fluent in French, delivers all his lines in English. Kate Winslet was originally cast in Elizabeth Moss's role. Breaking from typical movie poster etiquette, the ensemble cast is grouped by storylines rather than billing on the official French Dispatch poster. Number six, what upon what? In France, it is common for places to have the word sir between two descriptions, such as belle sur mer, translating to beautiful place upon the sea. Well, the two descriptions in Wes Anderson fictional French town are inu and blasé, inu sur blasé, or boredom upon apathy. Biggity bobbity, Timmy got back, back, boop, boop, too. Number five, Sazerac Nest Cafe. Owen Wilson's character, Herb St. Sazerac, was named after Herb St. and Sazerac, two liquors hailing from New Orleans, Louisiana. Louisiana! And the commissioner's chef's name is Nescafier, which sounds exactly like Nescafe. Do you have any more culturally uh, biased uh, impersonations you want to do? Let's see it again. Let me that Louisiana. Let me that Louisiana. Louisiana. <laughs> again, his email will be you, you know what it is. <clears throat> Number four, Anarchy with a Blueprint. All of the cast shared similar sentiments uh, that working on the French Dispatch was the most exhilarating, challenging, yet fun they've ever had with any movie because every scene was done with as much improvisation as possible, using a well-written script to draw back to. I think that's what makes it, that's the ticket to when improvisation pays off is when there's good source material to keep everybody on some kind of track. So it doesn't, if it, yeah. But I just can't imagine how you felt because I know how hardcore of West Anderson and you would have bet me your bottom dollar. Like, no, everything was meticulous planned, And as you felt because, but I think that speaks to maybe something different and you tell me what you think. And I know we're in the middle of this, but if you are, it's that director that keeps you guessing. He's, he's stepping outside of what he does. I would say that I was, I was, I was wrong while still being right. Cause I think what my sentiment was is that everything he does is meticulous. Mm -hmm. And if like down to leave Schreiber being told to lift his hand after the second word, instead of the third word, because there's just no other way around it. When you look at the cinematography of how the, like how the shots correlate exactly with what's happening with what's being said, or we'll get down to those shots. We definitely will. But you know, you see what I'm saying though? Like there's no way that, like I, I I obviously there was improvisation because they said there is, but I think they like try something like, oh, okay, I like what you did there. Let's do that. Do that again, just like that. And I'm going to do this with the camera because there's always this relationship between the performance and that's a very slippery slope to go down. You have to have a, you have to have trust in the cast, the crew, everyone for stuff like that to happen. Well, he works with the same people 
of his whole career. So I would imagine that that trust with the casting crew oh, is like there. The Kehoe tribe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number three, music to my ears. The movie was originally thought to be a musical, but Wes Anderson denied it before production began, and that is music to my ears. I wonder why they thought that. Number two, marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. Five cast members have appeared in Marvel films, yet Durden is actually wrong. He said William Dafoe, Benicio del Toro, Edward Norton, Liv Shriver, and Tilda Swinton. Now he technically is right, but he's technically going to be wrong because the only reason why he technically is right because he said have appeared uh pretty soon the connection here is going to be that mr bill murray will be an ant-man and wasp uh quantum mania so bill murray yet again welcome to the marvels five going on six five going on six number one it takes a village wes anderson as well as the cast expressed how perfect france was for the location of the production with everything able to be shot within the city limits and the entire cast and crew living together and sharing meals like a big family a studio lot was constructed complete with sets and half the population of the town ended up working on the production to one degree or another, including the animation sequences being completed locally. There's well over a thousand residents of Angoulême who are in the movie. So they became kind of our partners. And those are uh, seven things you needed to know about the French dispatch. <laughs> Uh, before we move out of the, uh, the facts and listy list section of the episode, this is Wes Anderson's 10th film, and I just wanted to take a moment and share with you all the top 10 Wes Anderson films, according to me. Uh, this is totally biased. This is my opinion. Uh, and I think I, when you say according to you, yeah. they knew it was biased. Uh, redundancy is, is a very you important. You hear that anchor? Number 10, Isle of Dogs. This is the only Wes Anderson film I haven't finished, and I have tried. I always find myself <laughs> sleeping. I, 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 I Finally, some honesty here, some clarity, Jesus. I don't know why, it just went over my radar. I, I can appreciate the technical quality of it, the dialogue, see this film. the pacing is there. Uh, something about it won't allow me to sit through it. So what is it called again? Find itself at uh, number 10, Isle of Dogs. Isle of it's Dogs. A, it's a stop go. I keep looking stop up there motion for it. <laughs> Number nine, Bottle Rocket. Wes Anderson's first film was the third film of his that I watched. While it was great to get the Wilson brothers together in a feature, and it is cool to look back at their humble beginnings, the pacing lingers too much for me and the style wasn't fully developed yet. Number eight, The Darjeeling Limited. As great as it was to get a feature film pairing up Jason Schwartzman, Adrian Brody, and Owen Wilson, and they definitely delivered, it just seemed to meander aimlessly at times and didn't really know where it was going. Number seven, The Grand Budapest Hotel. This is a great addition to Wes Anderson's resume and Ralph Fiennes was a very welcome new face to Wes Anderson's world. Just for some reason or another, it kind of felt forgettable. Number six, Rushmore. Rushmore was the second Wes Anderson movie I ever saw and I always loved it. It's a young Jason Schwartzman versus Bill Murray and they are both fantastic. Uh, there's two reasons why it isn't higher on the list. There are some moments where this one kind of drags and uh, for me. And this was uh, still in the infancy of Wes Anderson's evolution that wouldn't fully start to be realized Spencer, until the uh, World Tenenbaums. All the signs were there for what Wes Anderson films would come to be known for, but whether due to budget limitations or just the fact that it was so early on in his career, just wasn't fully formed yet. Now here's the top five. These are all, it's, it, it becomes increasingly hard to put these in any particular order, but because they're, they're all just rewatchable. 
Fantastic Mr. Fox. One of my favorite authors growing up, Roald Dahl, gets the Wes Anderson treatment. That's all I needed to know. Then you take the meticulousness of Wes Anderson and apply it to stop motion work, and it resulted in something so visually impressive and interesting to take in. With live action, he treats every frame like a well-crafted work of art, so it was nuts to see that level of detail applied to a medium that is crafted one painstaking frame at a time. It was also really impressive that he was able to transition his brand of humor so seamlessly into a film that could also be enjoyed by children. Number four, Moonrise Kingdom. This one might be the most controversial ranking on the list because I know it's not a favorite for most Wes Anderson fans, but I really enjoyed it. It's not his funniest movie. It's not his most interesting. The aesthetic doesn't stand out. There's just something about it that I can't put my finger on. I really like Edward Norton's performance. The kids are great. Bruce Willis is utilized perfectly. It's just the last a, time someone said that. Not Kevin Smith. <laughs> it was just a uh, simple and cozy, well-made film. And here are the top three. Number three, The Royal Tenenbaums. This film was my introduction to Wes Anderson. It was my number one until Life Aquatic came out, and it was my number two until The French Dispatch. Spoiler alert. So many great moments uh, with amazing actors. You got Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, Gene Hackman, Luke Wilson, Angelica Houston, Gwyneth Paltrow, Bill Murray, and so many more. The soundtrack, the laughs, the shots, everything. It's just a really fun film about seriously troubled people. Number two, The French Dispatch. I won't say too much here because we're reviewing the movie later on in the episode. I'll just say that this is perfectly and unapologetically Wes Anderson. And after seven years without a live action film from him, it was great to see him leaning into all the things that makes his films great, improving on them and doing it with a cast of familiar faces, all turning in some of the best performances of their careers. And number one, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Wes Anderson has perfected the creation of anti-heroes tailored to all of Bill Murray's strengths. But until Life Aquatic, this was only utilized in small doses through supporting roles. Life Aquatic puts Bill Murray front and center to carry the film, and he makes every moment a pleasure to watch. The story demands a backdrop that gives Wes Anderson the perfect excuse to go crazy with his signature aesthetic. Uh, turned all the way up. Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, and Owen Wilson are also fantastic in it. I don't think any movie that Wes Anderson could ever do could beat The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou unless he puts uh, Bill, Bur Bill, Burry. Unless he puts Bill Murray uh, at the uh, top of the billing again and lets him carry another movie. I don't even care what's happening in it. So those are my uh, top 10 Wes Anderson films. Put in the comments what what your favorite Wes Anderson films are. Which uh, one of my rankings made you the most angry? What do you disagree with? I want to know about those as well. Uh, I know that uh, Wes Anderson fans have a very sprawling uh, depiction of what their favorite films are of his. So. What do you think about Asteroid City? I'm excited about it. It's going to be fucking awesome. you surprised I knew about it. No, we just brought it up and everything. <laughs> just making sure. I'm just keeping you on your toes. Okay. Lover. Now, here comes the theory part where you can hear us out. All my Hulkamaniacs, put that little hand up to the ear. So. Rory Rickshaw McAllister. That's right. So, my theory for this film is that I am, I consider myself to be an educated man. However, sometimes you cannot speak on things that you really aren't qualified to speak on. I've seen less than 10% of his uh, Wes Anderson's uh, films. However, I did see this one. You've seen 20%. 
Oh, it's 20% now. Thank you so much. Yes, and, I'm a, and that Asteroid City, can't wait. Um, I will say this, is if I had a theory about this film, I my theory is that it would go to the director, not more so about the film. My theory is that the director really... Wants to fuck a French girl. Well, <laughs> we'll get to that later, brother. Uh, yeah, well, that's, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, anyway, you see, got me off. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. <laughs> Uh, but my theory is that that uh, what, what Wes Anderson did with this film is that I don't know I don't know if he does with all his films is that pandemic regardless, social justice regardless, uh, asteroid coming to destroy the planet regardless. He was in his head. He made this film, and, and no matter what was going on outside of in the world, he stuck to this is simply what this is. This is film, and I'm gonna make the film that I want the way that I want to make it. There were so many aspects and attention to detail things that were happening doing this film. So my theory is that is that just like there are method actors, I believe that directors can get into that zone too, and whether it's writing or whatnot, when they do a film, they don't care what's going on. And we even heard it when we were talking about uh, uh, the director from People Under the Stairs. When Wes Craven did that, you heard uh, you heard Jan, Jan Burt say, the talented Jan Burt say, listen, I went and found him when the suits were there. He was there because he didn't want anybody to interrupt the process. Yeah. And to me, that's to me. So my theory is that, that he Wes got- Wes Craven needed a Rob Harper. Don't they all? <laughs> Uh, but my theory is that, like I said, he definitely got into his zone in this, and he didn't let anything worldwide because there were no. To me, there there was no there was no messages in the film as far as like you know what I mean, like mm -hmm. overt messages. There's sub sub, sub uh, uh, there are subtle messages. So that's my theory that he got into his zone. He was a, being a method director, and I'm I'm happy he did it because I'm happy for the experience. I agree. I agree because uh, I definitely agree that I'm that being happy about that he got into his zone uh, because. There, like of of late, there have been whispers in the uh, the the film commentary verse of like just this like subtle passive despise or resentment towards Wes Anderson. I guess because so many filmmakers kind of rip off his style, and his style has become kind of like its own its own thing that is so easy to like point out and say oh he's do just, just like doing this again he's doing this again like that's that's been happening a little bit with like uh people that talk about films online and i was i was hoping that that wouldn't cause him to like lean away from what he's really talented at doing and yeah this he totally got in the zone and went right into like like leaned more into what makes his movies so great my only uh my only theory is actually kind of an anti-theory. It's uh, it's a debunking of a theory that I previously held. Uh, the French Dispatch is responsible for that debunking. For the longest time, I believed, truly believed, that Francis McDormand and Willem Dafoe were the same person. Here, here, I know this. We're out of theory. Or no, yeah, no. Hear me out, okay. You've never seen them at the same place at the same time until this movie. That's why it was kind of debunked. But I was just, I really believed that. I don't know. I couldn't tell you which one I thought was real because I didn't know. But I thought either Frances McDormand was playing Willem, a character that she made up called Willem Dafoe in other times of her life, or Willem Dafoe was doing that with Frances McDormand. But they, I thought that they were the same person was in some like real life performance. It's piece. a classic uh, Phil Banks. Uh, it's a classic uh, Phil Banks, uh, Carl Winslow situation you got yourself in there. 
Yep. But this uh the line, yet again. <laughs> this proves it wrong though, because they are in the same film. However, it, it at the same time there's still that's what I was saying. They don't <laughs> share the screen at the same time. So there's still hope that the theory lives on. But but even if they even with them never sharing the screen at the whole time, it would still take I mean, there was like hundreds of people on the cast and crew of this film, so it would require them all to keep their mouths shut or that or that they were all fooled, too, and thought that they were seeing two different uh, people when they're really just seeing one playing the other. So that's that's my theory. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right, guys, those are the theories. Whatever theories you may have, trust me, you should have some. But if you haven't seen the film, it's definitely worth a watch. So go check it out. And during what, what does that bring us to? Open discussion. Let's just talk about the movie, uh, some of the notes we have. And I thought it was very interesting. Uh, what, if you could show the camera what your notes are on. Well, they're in a composition notebook. However, my notes are written on. This is what happened when I go live or go on set or whatnot. Uh, there was a mix-up. Uh, I, I was going to bring my composition notebook to the theater, but Durden said, don't worry, I'm going to print out these pieces of paper for you. But somewhere in the midst of him saying that and me getting to the theater, there were no papers there. Not blaming anyone. I could tell you what happened. In well, yeah, that. but they don't want to know about that. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so he did go and find me a job application. And, you know, out of all the places I have worked, I've never worked in a, well, I actually have worked in a movie theater. A lot of times it's been pro bono. Uh, but with that being said, all my notes today are on a job application from the beautiful Sunray Cinema in Jacksonville, Florida, where you can find this voice, this face. And this scarf all in one place so with that being said guys we're gonna go ahead and jump into talking doing the movie guys i want to go ahead and tell you this uh one of the first things i want to say about the film is that i get one of the things that pisses me off the most is uh, about film is the, the the generation we live in now i'm starting to really blame the 90s kids and some of you 2000 kids it just seems like there are no more original ideas anymore there's so many remakes and i mean jesus fucking christ and i have I, I promised myself i wasn't gonna curse as much for the rest of the season and then i saw the trailer for home sweet home sweet home Alone. And the reason why I say it is again, I, I just really hate remakes. So what this film did do, it took me out of the world of one, two, three, four, and I did not know what was coming. And then also, I'm always a fan, which is harder to do of a film that splits the film up. It's like three different films in one, but the three films support the overall theme of the the, the movie. It's kind of like a pulp fiction. Yes, but not not out of order, if you will. Almost like a Kill Bill, but that was out of order too. Yeah, yeah, I I can kind of see that a little bit. So yeah, with that, but it's now careful when he's talking about the arrangement of the film. But with that being said, I want to say that I love that, and I absolutely love the casting. You can't get away with doing the film this way with subpar talent. For I mean, for Pulp Fiction's sake, yeah, let's not compare apples to oranges here. Well, there no was the the, Pulp Fiction is the apple and the oranges. Don't get me. what, What do you like more, apples or oranges? Apples, oranges, then French dispatch. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. But no, please, we're talking to him. Please. Thank you. <laughs> Wes Anderson's ability to make you laugh without telling a joke is what makes his movies so great to me. He he puts so much time and effort, or I don't even know if it's time and effort. Maybe it's just something he was born with. Maybe it's Maybelline. The setup is masterfully created in these characters and their nuances that they have that somehow you like like Benicio del Toro you see him and it just cuts to him and he's sitting there 
and somehow you feel like you know this character like what makes this person tick like you you know enough about them to to find humor in these nuances that come so quickly after you just meet them he has one of the most efficient and interesting ways of, of character development i honestly don't know how it works on paper but it does when you're watching it uh he trades boring exposition for anecdotal hilarity the punchline is in the timing the cut the blocking the whimsical nature of the external remaining emotionally grounded internally like so he has all this crazy shit what? going no he fuck that all, no one's no, out there smart say it, say it again say it i'm again. gonna say it differently he has all this crazy shit going on, this like almost like straight out of Looney Tunes that's happening externally, but it's all grounded in this reality of human emotion. It's all coming from this place of like jealousy or resentment or greed or lust or uh, pride. Most most of the time, like like terrible traits in humans, it's it's drawn back to that, but it's just you can appreciate and buy into the, the whimsiness of it because it's emotionally grounded so it's keeping you in reality it's keeping you attached to reality in some way so that the response is real to this insanity that's that's happening the example i have is like i said when we first meet uh julian cadazio adrian brody guard who painted this picture he offers a single piece of candy to the guard for information. You remember that part where he's like sitting there looking at all the paintings and, and he holds out one piece of candy for the guard. He requests more from the guard and it quietly cuts to a wide shot of him. Already, He already has three pieces of candy in his hand. There's no, You don't see his arm move or anything like that. It just cuts and there's there's already three pieces of candy in the palm of his hand. There's waiting some Mr. For the guard. D's very, very sneaky <laughs> shit going on right at the butler. So very few words of significance spoken in that scene, if at all. You could mute the scene and still walk away with two things in just 90 seconds of screen time. You know the two characteristics about Cadazio. He is determined and he's enthusiastic about offering something of value in return for something he wants. And you still get to enjoy the humor of the moment. The joke there is relying on every individual who touches that scene from Adrian Brody's performance, the cinematographer getting the perfectly framed shots to accent the candies in the wide shot and the close up uh, to the person that arranged the candies in Adrian's palm for that perfect reveal where you're only going to see it for two seconds and they're just arranged there strategically down to the editor essentially controlling the timing of the punchline all beginning. Uh, it, it all begins with Wes Anderson, who saw the potential of this moment before it was even thought. That that is just a that that's one one note that I have as far as what makes uh, what I love so much about Wes Anderson's films is that nuance in the characters. I want to say uh, first off, again the again we already talked about the casting being amazing. The, to me, it, listen, cinematography was an A plus for me. I must say that. I mean, like literally, like that, again, like. That's I listen, I that you can't take that away from that film and the time and effort that it was a put. So those one of those things, they weren't flying by the seat of their handle. It was literally, or should I say flying by the handle of their seat? They really were meticulous in the things that they shot from the and a different angle. You almost if you if you're in film school and you want to know what's all the shots and what's the modern up-to-date shots and all these other shots they show examples of, just watch this film. I guarantee you every shot was used in shots you don't even know were used. Like they even had the camera like 
like they, I forgot, I, th I think it was called a reverse duck shot is when you just shoot something just catacorned that way. I may be wrong, but they even did that when they leaned it up and then they had, it was just. That's a perfect segue to my next Please. note is actually the, that, that one shot that I love, one of the, my favorite shots in the movie is that when it's looking down <coughs> at Benicio Del Toro and the Simone character, mm -hmm. it, it's like if she's talking, it's like looking down on them like this. And then when he talks, it's like they just flip it so that whoever's talking, their head is facing the right way towards the audience. And <laughs> they're looking out dead on. Yeah, it was just so... Storyboarded correctly. It was very experimental looking because you could still... It looked kind of... It, there was something off-putting about it. Like, it looked uh, so abrupt and weird. Like, you were... Not know, to mention just, that brother's one of the best scenes of the film, which we'll get into later. Oh, but. And one of the best proposals and proposal denials in right. the history. Like, of no. No what? Will you? No. Will you no. marry? The, what, what made it so great is she's as persistently as she's saying no as he's talking. He just continues to finish his proposal right. unfazed. As the only if, way, how does she get him to go? Do I have to lock you? Put you back in the street jacket and lock you back up? <laughs> Damn, that's cold. Yeah. My, uh, my last note is um, something you can always count on in Wes Anderson movies are a lot of great actors and big names, and he will fit as many of those actors into a single shot, all looking like perfectly posed facing the camera. Like, you saw like a few of them where there's, in this movie, where there's like a, every, as many, like 10, 15 people in a single frame, and they're all just like, like they're having their picture taken and we're, and we're the photographer. Uh, so. That's like in every single one of his movies. And it just, I don't know why, but when it cuts to one of those shots and it just has all these people just kind of like silently, dumbfoundedly just gawking towards your direction, there's something about that that it's just, it's funny without any words being spoken. It's my last note. Definitely has a Charlie Chaplin feel to it, but with words. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get into casting call. All right, guys. You know what time it is. It's time for the infamous casting call. This is the segment of the show where we switch out actors and actresses for ones we either thought could have done better or just were fan favorites of our own. And this week, we have a couple of characters that we're going to go ahead and uh, dwell into. So, uh... Hey, I'm going to go ahead and start here. Let's go ahead and get the, the funds one out of the way. So for Benicio Del Toro, who played Moses, I think you're going to get a kick out of this, sir. I, I have Mr. Javier Bardem. Oh, hey, yeah, that's I actually kept getting them confused for each other. In that. <laughs> What's going on? It's, it's after six. I'm sorry. Oh. Dave's out. Dave's <laughs> loose. What the hell's wrong with you, man? <laughs> Like, no, tell me. What? No, uh, because they both kind of speak with that really, really low voice They're both where you strong can barely actors. hear them. Yeah, uh, yeah they, they both have, and they both have those, like, the, the deep set eyes with the big, mm -hmm. with the bags. They, they wear a lot. Yeah. I don't know. They, they both look like they've killed someone actually in real life. Yeah, and, and, and of course, the foreign thing. And we're counseled again. <laughs> and Dave, you're up next. <laughs> I, I, know, I mean, if you're... Mm. Adrian Brody, uh, Julian. Oh, my, my, yeah. Benicio del Toro. I would have. Uh, I, I mean, he was fantastic. I couldn't really imagine anybody doing better. But um, I think Brad Pitt would have been interesting. Hmm. 
Imagine him with the, with the, like a full like beard, talking all low and monotone, and kind of reserving himself a little bit. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm gonna take you on a ride with this one because I think what I thought it was gonna be obscure, and I just thought it'd have been funny to me. Uh, you're definitely not gonna see this one coming. Adrian Brody. I would have liked to have seen who played Julian. I would like to have seen Emilio Estevez. I could see that. Can you? Yeah, I could because. But with well, his hair, I want his hair dark though. I want him to. to nah, I can't he, imagine. You don't that. want a dark hair, Emilio. <laughs> don't go dark, Emilio. <laughs> Why not? He's never done it. Uh, I don't know. Just like he looks uh, like a mashup of Martin and Charlie. <laughs> no, Bombay. <laughs> Gordon Bombay. I, I think I think I might have it. I've gone weirder with okay. Adrian Brody for Julian. I would say Mark Wahlberg. I definitely can see that though. The reason why is because, uh, really, because of Mark Wahlberg in I Heart Huckabees, he has this ability to just let himself go completely and be uh, like he doesn't he doesn't mind turning it up to eleven, uh, even if that's at the expense of him looking ridiculous. It's about like, the scene; it's not about. And, and that's like Adrian Brody's character, and that's just this like this dumb, uh, overly enthusiastic. Uh, person that's just he's he's turned up in every single scene he's in to the top as far as emotion i, I think mark Wahlberg could have done it even though you know, adrian brody is fucking amazing <laughs> so, he is i mean but you haven't seen predators yet yeah uh well, yeah i saw enough of it oh there you go all right and okay we have of course the character played by uh, tilda swinton here um for her i would have gone i was gonna go with miss uh jane lynch yeah yeah i could see that for sure I'm starting to think you don't can't see any of this because you keep saying it. So you like, I can see that. No, I can see. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing swell. This this casting. Oh, oh thank call. you. No, is you know what your is mine's made episode of The Office with Dwight when Jim kept fucking with him like two years. Like I can see that. <laughs> Three years. That's a real possibility. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I I I had to go with uh, Angela pointed this out again when we were watching it that uh tilda swinton's character could have easily been portrayed by jillian anderson i'd have to agree um i mean tilda swinton as much as i hate to say it was fantastic and i mean she was so good there is there is she had at least i would i'd say she had at least three laugh out loud moments but she has some, she has some, definitely has some moments in there i, I, I can't I'm, remember the exact wording but it was like he took me in the back and fucked me he uh, grabbed me and put me in there and inappropriately sort of tried to fuck me. That brings us to uh, Timothy Chalamet, who played Zeffirelli. And for the people who did not see the film yet, they are, they are the people who are going to see the film, just because uh, I feel like if we're going to do a casting call, we have to let these people know uh, not uh, all about the character, but what type of character that he portrayed to the film. What was his role to the film? Zeffirelli. Um, he, he played pretty much a, uh, a young revolutionist, mm -hmm. uh, protester, um, chess player, which I think is a cool correlation in itself because that's, I mean, the, the game of chess and also trying to navigate a political system are very similar. So yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. He was one of my, he was one of my favorite characters. And I'm not going to lie. He, he, the thing is, is he did his thing in it. But I would say this with him, that character, I was surprised. I would say this, that Wes Anderson actually, I mean, don't get me wrong. It would have been funny if he was an adult, but the fact is as a child, kind of like just still a young child protester, kind of just, it, 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 it speaks to you a little bit. I'll, I'll say that. So 
for me, for my, I'm gonna make sure I'm getting this guy's name right here. I just wanna make sure I'm not. His saying brain it. was beyond his years. Oh, perfect segue for my answer. As was his dick. Oh, oh, okay, that's the story for another day. All right, I am going because, to because he fucked Francis McDormand. I want to I want to make sure I'm saying this person's name right. So uh, for, I need you to not well, just let that go because that makes me look weird. He fucked Francis McDormand, so his dick was beyond his years. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's payback, bitch. <laughs> All right, so for me, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm auto, I'm probably going to butcher his name. Uh, Lane Ar- Ar- Artemich. Uh, Young Sheldon. Oh sure. Oh, I would have loved that. Oh oh. The guy oh, that plays Young okay. Sheldon, the boy. As, okay. As, Wait, are as, you going younger? No, Zeffirelli. Yeah. The chess player. Yeah. The kid. And you want the kid from you want Young Sheldon? He's old because he's older than he really is. That actor can play that. Oh, okay. I wasn't talking about Sheldon. No, not Sheldon. Oh, not, okay. uh, not uh, not um, no, no, not him. No, Young Sheldon. Literally. The little boy. The little boy from yeah. You want the little the little boy to, to have put, sex with Francis McDormand? I still don't know what you're talking about. I I, I kept the age appropriate. I, I thought Michael Sarah. Would no, have, no, you know what? No, you know what? No, you know what? I take that back. Can I? Can I? I don't want to redo before. I want to say it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You know what? Because I'm mad, I'm mad that we don't just just throw his picture up there. Because if I can't get his name right, but he his name deserves the. Uh, remember the show I had you watch uh, with the girl running down the street in the uh, red, the bloody dress at the end. Uh, uh, I'm not okay with this. Mm. The, oh, the yeah. boy yeah, that yeah. she was, the boy that was that 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 she was with, that liked her really much. The, mm-hmm. the, the hair, him. Yeah, I'm sorry, dude. You could, you could Keep acting. That. I'll apologize later. Uh, I, I still stick to Michael Sarah. Okay. I think he could have pulled it off. I, I mean, if if you doubt me on this, just watch him, his alter ego character in Youth and Revolt. It's. I think he could have killed that character. All right. And uh, Jeffrey Wright, who played Roebuck, and just real quick for context, Roebuck was? Roebuck Wright was a, uh, he was an author uh, that focused mainly on on the food and important stories. And he had a, uh, a textographic memory, I believe it was called, yes. not a pictographic. Pictographic. He could yes. recite his own books and things that he had read uh, from memory, word for word. I and, I and as we said earlier, he was a he was inspired by uh, James Baldwin and another gentleman whose name is escaping me. With his hair done appropriately, I draft Childish Gambino. I almost said that, but I feel like I've said Donald Glover a few too many times in in this series. No, Childish Gambino. Oh yeah, specifically like coming to America. Yeah, 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 that that his his that 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 uh that persona, not Donald Glover, not the comedian, Mm -hmm. Childish Gambino. Yeah, that's the one I would want. I said uh, Denzel Washington. But specifically, what's that movie? Roman something Esquire. Oh, Roman J Esquire. He's the lawyer. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that version of Denzel. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that happening. And I would, uh, I would love to see Denzel Washington. What he would do with Wes Anderson direction and dialogue in like a movie like that. Or you know what? Fuck it. He's not an actor, but Malcolm X. I could have seen him doing that. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could like the real Malcolm X just sitting there just. And as of course, I've already bookmarked it in that torture. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, there you go, guys. That's casting call. Please let us know who you would want to use in these for these characters if you've seen the movie. If not, go check it out and don't forget hit subscribe. All right.
right, let's get into seven minutes in heaven, starting off with our favorite scenes in the French Dispatch. All right. Okay, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. If you have not seen the movie, Bill Murray fucking dies, which is a rule that should never be broken. Uh, but with that being said, one of the, I mean, this wasn't even just for this film. This has to be one of my favorite scenes in Product Life. It, it takes a lot for me to see a new film and be like, damn, that might be one of my favorite scenes of all time. Bill Murray is dead for all of 35 seconds. They're having a team meeting about him dead. And somebody call, call, comes in and offers either some cake or some pizza. And, and everybody says no. Owen Wilson turns around like, I'll have a slice. <laughs> I'll have a slice. There's so always dude, that person. It doesn't that, matter. Like, it's always that. Like, I mean, just because I'm grieving doesn't mean I'm not hungry. Like, that yeah. shit, like, it's Bill fucking Murray. Like, I have a, and, and, I need to eat my and if they were improvising, that was perfect. Like, everybody said, I have a slice. Have a slice. <laughs> That, that was Owen Wilson's character. Yeah, Owen, yeah I know for sense, a fact. Because if you go back to the beginning of his character, he he was like, he was kind of just like basking in the, uh, the debauchery of that, yeah, of the ambience of that town. So like, he is morbid. And and, and when he, when Bill Murray is like, he, you know, calling him out on, you know, this is so seedy. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people supposed to be charming. Benicio Del Toro's uh, Moses Rosenthaler uh, introduction with uh, Leah Sadu's Simone. Benicio Del Toro's blank expression somehow says so much and manages to elicit a response as if someone just told the, a great joke. How much is said in that scene with no word spoken at all. The decisions in the uh, blocking and the editing that contribute to the comedic timing, uh, specifically after he does the after he walks up to her and he puts the paintbrush on the small of her stomach or whatever on her side and, and she... And whips him away. And then it cuts to that shot looking where he was standing before, before he walked over and he's walking away from the camera uh, just defeated and so nonchalantly that it was just uh, such a uh, funny, funny scene with no words spoken. To quote the great king Jaffe Jofa, I ate my own potato chip once. <laughs> it's a very overrated experience. The, the, the sexiest, I'm not one of those people that get into the whole food inside the bedroom thing. Those are two separate appetites for me. But with that being said, I've been, I've been fed food before, but that was the sexiest chip I ever saw pushed into a man's mouth from a female's hand in my life. And I'm just gonna go ahead and say this, kids, earmuffs and eye muffs, her breasts were percolating in that scene. Like, it's almost as if you can see the salt particles come from the chip down and mount up on her breasts. Do you see how my hat just fell off? Hats like, off. Hats off. Hats off to those uh, Hats off, yeah. David, kids what? are watching. Jesus you Christ. Earmuffs. Yeah, I mean, geez. But uh, yeah. The, Enough said. Yeah. All guys heard were tears. Like, I'm going to see it. Uh, Wes Anderson, baby. <laughs> yeah. Wes, show it to me, Anderson. Um, the first, uh, <laughs> yeah, I need to collect myself after that. Yeah. After this Here's the cup. Ta-da. <laughs> um, the first flash. Um, wow. Let me take it down. Jesus Christ. Get a hold of yourself. No, don't get a hold of yourself. Not in here. It's the OnlyFans episode. Mm. The first flashback of young Rosenthaler, uh, the quick the quick cut humorous exposition montage where the humor is found in the delightfully absurd details sprinkled throughout the timing of the quick moments. 
that accompany the sprawling voiceover um, when it's going through his life so quickly and you get the uh, <laughs> it's taking you through a montage of him like painting in these different environments and situations and the, the voiceover is explaining each situation like you know this and that and this and physical danger and as soon as she says physical danger it cuts to like they're just having a shootout and he's just still as casually as ever painting but what what had me on the floor damn near if angela wouldn't have tapped me to stop me she says uh mental illness and when it cuts to him painting himself looking at himself on the other side of the canvas, a different version of himself, and he's in the mirror looking at himself. It was so fucking I remember being in the theater with you getting ready to write that scene down, and I looked at you, and we were both here, I was like, you get it. You got it. You take it. This is what's so great about Wes Anderson, is that he will dip you into the abstract without warning, and just as well pull you back into some version of his reality without notice. Like, that, that moment did not fit in this movie it was so abstract and out of place like it was like it was something out of a psychological thriller but because of the music and the timing and the placement of it it had the exact opposite reaction as a thriller well okay i had i was going to go to one of my other ones but i'll segue because you just said something that felt like it didn't belong in the movie in the first act of the film they're inside the jail where they came to see something i'm not going to say just yet but they're inside the jail and all these people are there and i can't remember specifically what happened to benicia del toro's character but somebody does something to him and and all of us we we've had this pacing all through the film these shots these shots these shots everything perfect like and all of a sudden out of nowhere it cuts to someone pushing beneath del toro around in that wheelchair and him chasing this person going like i don't know how fast a wheelchair can go but it was at top fucking speed and he is with no regard his life or anything chasing one of those butler trees like just throwing it at this person that that tickled me so bad because i was just like if, if you like if, if something was lulling you to sleep or you were getting stagnated it, you're, back. It, you're, you're, you're back and i was like it, it was it was like a slow burn that was worth the payoff but yes go ahead yeah and that was another one of those moments it just it it doesn't seem like like if you're looking at it on the page and you don't know it shouldn't Wes be Anderson, there it read it. yeah it's it like is this a cartoon now like oh, what's happening i'll speak here? on that later <laughs> go ahead uh, when Adrian Brody's Cadazio presents Ro- Rosenthaler's work to his uncles for the first time, you get Henry Winkler and uh, Bob Balaban. We're getting out of armor, rugs, and tapestries, too. Found something new. What I loved about this scene is the way Adrian Brody keeps changing his blocking, almost robotically moving and hitting a different mark to punctuate each line of dialogue. It was almost like uh, right before the scene, Wes Anderson said, it's like, okay, Adrian, I want you to be in a different place in the room for every line, every sentence that you speak. Because he's like, it was just so. It's always finding his mark or a mark anyway. It was like staged, and uh, and then that scene came with the great lines too, where they lean like they get all three of them leaning, look at the painting. Winkler was like, I don't get it. Of course you don't. Am I too old? Of course you are. Why is this good? It isn't good. Wrong idea. That's no answer. <laughs> Very true. And again, the witty, the timing, the dialogue, which they can say it was improvised all they want. Certain stuff was 
done, I had to say the correct way, the traditional way, should I say. <laughs> one, one of the things you said that, that segues right into my other scene, which was I call it old people versus old people. And the reason why I say it's uh, it segue from what you just said, because the scene by itself alone would have made it the best scene. The dialogue by itself wouldn't have made it the best scene, but these two things together. There is a montage at the beginning of the film, and I think if I'm not mistaken, Owen Wilson is, the, when we first meet, meet Owen Wilson's character. The constant traffic, the high And he is describing what type of, you say he loathes the city. And one of the lines was just so fucking funny. He was saying the young people do this, the, the working class does this, and then you have the old people. Old people who have failed. And you just see them all like we're like struggling in life work. I'm just like, you know, it should be so cruel, but it's so fucking funny. It was just like these mother like, nah, god damn, bro, how could you say that? He was like, and old people. Old people who failed. I was like, yeah. That's you remember that? Yeah, yeah. That, that's what I, that's what I love so much about Wes Anderson's movies, because he takes these dark the darkest concepts of humans, like like the mental health joke. Hmm. Like you're laughing at somebody that has schizophrenia, but it's but the way it's portrayed, it's it's so tickling. And then and then like that way you said like uh, it, it, like old people that have failed like that. There's really nothing sadder than an old person, a, a human being at the end of their life with nothing to show for it. Yeah. And like Wes Anderson looks at, at moments like that or mental health or the line from Benicio del Toro, which is one of my favorite in the movie, which we'll get to. Uh, about suicide he takes these dark subjects that are like tor usually tormenting the humans and uh it's it's like that you know the comedy of tragedy and he nails it perfectly i agree uh that scene where rosenthaler put himself in the electric chair he tells the guard you know, throw the switch you cocksucker what i really loved about that scene was the very first establishing shot of him it was such like a big room with this chair so small in the center and he's just sitting there just like like it, really like he looks in every single scene just like he's defeated he's done he's over it he really he's nihilistic has no care he, he's, but the way it just shows him there totally alone and accepting of where he's at is uh again just a, a tickling visual and then simone comes in and tells him Go back to work, he says, I can't, it's too hard, it's torture. I'm literally a tortured artist. <laughs> and she, no compassion, walks over and gives him just a little buzz. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. He oh, yeah. wants to kill himself, yeah. so she gives him just a little zap with it, a little mm -hmm. taste. See what it tastes like. Now, uh, one of the, one of my other favorite scenes here, and like I said, this will be my last one, which is, uh, I call it Manifesto, a.k.a. Cradle Robin the Grave, and you brought that up earlier. And it was just the fact that they so, again, it, it speaks to, like you just said with Wes Anderson, he's taking subjects that should be taken seriously. Like, of course, uh, I'm not under age six. That guy had to be all of 16, 17, and this lady had to be all of in her 50s. And the way that they just, they didn't even, they, they cut to it as if nothing was wrong. Like, again, he didn't see anything wrong. There was no racism. There was no classism. There was just, this is, this is where you're at. Bumfuck Egypt, wherever this place is, and you're going to like it. So just to see the dynamic of this young herd, steed. I'm naked, Mrs. Cremens. I can see that. Fucking this cougar. They was, made it very apparent that, and that was one of the running jokes, that he was he was very recently pubescent. 
Please turn away. I feel shy about my new muscles. Right, and he, he said, she said it late. He, he was like, he was like, I'm a virgin, except for her. And she was like, he's like, figure. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Right. So yeah, those are those are my. Please scene. look I think, away. I'm embarrassed about my new muscles. Yes, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Honorable mention again. Um, that uh, listen. Um, yeah, I think I just simply wrote it this way. Um, I called her. Um, Guardiane. Guardiane. So about Simone? Yeah. Yeah. She's a scene stealer. You kept me up throughout the movie, and that's all I'll say. It's a fresco! I don't even know how you peel them off. It's a fresco. No, that's, that's, yeah, my yeah, last, yeah. that's my last scene. Man. Oh, oh that, that was, was... It might be my favorite scene. Oh, that was my line. From, I mean, to say yes. This shit has... This, I feel like, I feel like Stefan on Saturday Night Live. This scene has everything. Oh. <laughs> He stabs himself in the leg. No explanation as to why. That's for you as the audience to figure oh, out. I, I told you why. He didn't want to stand for those assholes, pompous assholes. Oh, and I agree with that, but I just think that it's hilarious that they don't even no, explain yeah, it. Yeah, it's okay. like you, you either can understand and enjoy it or just take it for the absurdity that it is. He, he, he paints the fucking paintings directly on the walls of the federally owned no, penitentiary. No, directly. Into the walls. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in the plaster. <laughs> and then, like you said, the, the wheelchair chase. And this scene is like a roller coaster of emotions in a single scene. It goes from, like, a, in just Adrian Brody, he goes from being completely enamored and in love with Benicio del Toro, like, oh, this work is amazing, to infuriated and, like, angry and violent. Get out of that wheelchair, I'm gonna kick your ass up and down this hobby room! And then next thing you know, he's all apologetic and sensitive and they're hugging, they're literally hugging, um, which this is another Wes Anderson trope. Not before he told him he found a way to chisel it out of the wall. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and the old woman decided to buy it. Um, but yeah, that I mean, that Wes Anderson does that often in his movies where he takes you on, where he has one character just be so off the rails emotionally, and then uh, you get that line in there where uh, Adrian Brody says uh, about um, Benicio Del Toro. We have to accept it. His need to fail is more powerful than our strongest desires to help him succeed. <laughs> His desire mm -hmm. to fail. Uh, and then uh, when he looks out, when he, every, you know, there's the riot happening outside the door. And um, he looks out, sees all the prisoners standing at the door. He's... How'd you get out there? He turns around and uh, Benicio's door is like, lock the door. So he locks the door and then everything, all the prisoners come bursting through the wall. It's just crazy to me how Wes Anderson can seamlessly sprinkle in moments like that. Like he said before, like like stripped from a Looney Tunes cartoon. Almost Three Stooges-esque that first like, Yeah, act. Three Stooges for mm -hmm. sure. And, and he just like drops it into this and it just works. And then he goes from that Looney Tunes moment or Three Stooges moment and the very next shot is this innovative, experimental, artistic, that essentially like what everybody was doing at the weddings. Like, what, what was it called? Uh, where everybody would freeze frame and like in an action shot, they'd all just stop and the camera would move around the reception or whatever. And I believe we call it douchebag photography. <laughs> it's definitely, but, but he took that and implemented it in a film to like show the this crazy action sequence but you're just getting a single frame of it and and the fact that it like if he just did a freeze frame and then matrix style you know went around the room it's cheap, was, it's cheap. yeah but it was it made it so interesting the fact that it was done practically and like when something is spilling out of something it was like 
a hard version of that so it could be you know frozen in time it was just awesome yeah it's a storytelling you know all storytelling isn't done with acting yeah it's the camera work is so, everything all right guys th those were our favorite scenes if you have seen it tell us what your favorite scenes were and if you haven't seen it i mean we pretty much did a great a longest elevator stuck elevator pitch you've ever seen in your fucking life yeah and that's going to bring us to our favorite lines guys all right so with that being said one of my favorite lines was when he said, when they say, uh, you're sad. I'm not sad. My eyes hurt. There's something wrong with your apartment. <laughs> that that speaks for itself. They'll go. And it throws you off too, because you're laughing at it. You thought you think, oh man, she's just being a, you know, a snooty bitch. Next there was something like, oh, really was yeah, wrong no. with the apartment. <laughs> I'm not sad, my eyes hurt. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Uh, Bill Murray's uh, Horde, sir. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. Oh, that was one of the best lines. And it, it would not have been the best line in the hands or uh, coming out the mouths of many other actors. Mm. It's, it's Bill Murray's ability to just say something so nonchalantly. Like when the kid walks in, he says, you know, so-and-so is waiting here. You're fired. <laughs> and it was, it was so quick. Yet again, another shout out to Owen Wilson at the uh, when we met his character. It was right around the time he dropped the old people versus old people, and he was like, he was like, marauding choir boys, half drunk on the blood of Christ. That was just like, oh my god! <laughs> Yet again, he doesn't care whether you're atheist, yeah. uh, 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 Scientologist, Christian. It doesn't matter. He is going going for the gusto. <laughs> half drunk on the blood of Christ. This might be my favorite line of the whole movie. Definitely the line that made me, that got the biggest laugh out of me. I could not control myself. Uh, Benicio Del Toro, Moses Rosenthaler, when he's uh, explaining to the penitentiary committee about why you know he should be doing uh, extracurricular activities. And he says, uh, I gotta keep my hands busy. Otherwise, I think maybe it's gonna be a suicide. And he was serious that he didn't say he was going to kill someone. He was literally saying that like himself, basically, maybe there'll be a suicide. What's humorous to me about that is the is he's like got it's a subtle hint at like depersonalization or um, or compartmentalizing your the, the, the compartmentalizing these troubled feelings in your brain, because in his mind, it's almost like he's saying it like it's a homicide there will be a suicide. No, you're saying you're going to kill yourself, but that, that sounds a lot more definitive that the, it's your hands and you're pulling the trigger. Yeah, so that, that, that got the outburst out of me. And this is, again, this is a staple of Wes Anderson movies to make some profound revelation or very heavy statement in this emotionally cut off deadpan kind of way. To, like, to be pretty much threatening suicide, but he says it as if he's ordering a cup of coffee. Like, I'll have a regular Macchino. Otherwise, they're uh, afraid there'll be a suicide. Kind of sounds like you belong to the coffee town a little bit there. Yeah. Uh, you said it earlier with one of the uh, the scenes, but it's also doubles for me as one of the lines. It's a fresco. It's a fresco. So what? Like, I want a shirt that says, it's a fresco, because it's the yeah. ultimate fuck you. Yeah. Like, if you watch the film, I'm not going to lie to you, that first act really did it for me. I wish that first act almost could have played out through the film. I mean, not saying I didn't need the second and third act because I really enjoyed the third act. Uh, but uh, one, also, I know we're going back and forth. Uh, one of my favorite lines was when he when he says, uh, uh, it's in the third act, he says, uh, 
I'll continue now with the story if that's okay. Do you remember where you placed the bookmark? Of course, silly goose. Meanwhile. That, I'll get to that later, but yeah, that was definitely one of my favorite lines. Uh, Bill Murray's uh, Howard Sir is reading Owen Wilson's Sazerac scathing expose on the town. And uh, Bill Murray says, you don't think it's almost too seedy this time? Owen Wilson, Sazerac responds, no, I don't. We're decent people. We're decent people. And then Sazerac says it was supposed to be charming, which again, like you said, it's just that that's one of the things that's so funny to me about his character is just in that moment, you get to know so much about Sazerac that he is like delusional if he thinks that what what Bill Murray just read was in any way charming. Under, under no circumstances was it. He's either delusional or morbid. But either way, it's just one of those funny things. You get a one-two punch joke, and in that joke, you get a hint of something about Owen Wilson's character. Maybe you can help me out with some of these that I wrote down, because I don't. I wrote them down. What, where was it? And he's like, not now. I'm conducting a job interview. That was when he was talking to, uh, when he was talking to Roebuck, Roebuck was in was in prison. Bill Murray's sitting outside the prison cell, talking to him, uh, like conducting the job interview. And some guy comes up to like give him something. He's like, "Not now. I'm conducting a job interview." Well, there you go. Like, the obviously, Bill Murray, the master. Go yeah. for it, sir. <laughs> when the title card reads three years later, it tilts down, shows Cadazio. It's three years later. Like saying exactly, <laughs> and then he was like, uh, yada, 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 how long are we meant to wait? Well, don't answer because we're not asking. <laughs> we'll be coming to you soon. He did, yeah, that, that was good. <laughs> Fucking three years later. It's been three years later. Uh, Timothy Chalamet's uh, Zeffirelli when Lucinda interrupts his bath. Please turn away. I feel shy about my new muscles. And then later on in that scene, after he asks her about her thoughts on his manifesto, where he's like, I don't, or she's like, I thought you wanted remarks. He's like, I don't need remarks. I only asked you to proofread it because I thought you'd be even more impressed by how good it already is. That right there is spot on. Like when it comes to exposing the defensive side lurking inside of every artist or writer or anything, like, look at this. Tell me how great I am. Lee Shriver's talk show, uh, he, Lee Shriver says uh, something that Jeffrey Wright's Roebuck Wright character um, asks him why in response to something, and Roebuck responds, don't ask a man why. Tightens the fellow up. I apologize, but I'm gonna hold you to Torture. <laughs> like, he's just, he's just externalizing his feelings out loud. Like, instead of feeling something and, and showing it, he's- speaking is the feeling. He's, he's, yeah, what is it? He's got the uh, text, text- no, Tectog Textography. I was about to say texticular. <laughs> no, I don't think he has that. Torture. Oh, and with that note, guys, those were our favorite lines from the film. And again, let us know in the comments below what are your favorite lines. And hey, guys, thanks. All right, it is time for Scene, scene stealers. stealers. All right, guys, you know what time it is. Scene Stealers. If you haven't been a part of the show or if you want to know what's happening now, we each episode, we choose our favorite artist. That artist can be a man, a female. It can be a, a wooden character, as we've seen before. It can be anything. Anyone that was in the film uh, that we felt was a great artist. And if you want to do a recap of where we've been at this year, we started the season off with Joker, who we got Mr. Joaquin Phoenix. We then went to Invention of Lying, if we had Miss Jennifer Garner. Uh-huh. And then Howard the Duck with Chip Zine and Candyman with Yaya Abdul-Mateen. 
the second. Then, of course, we followed up with The People Under the Stairs, and that went to Mr. Brandon Quinton Adams. And then uh, James McDonald of MCD Reviews stepped in to do Ghostbusters. And like we said before, you are in the future, we are in the past, so we don't know what he's going to pick yet. So that'll go up right now. Boom. And thank you for that, James. And of course, now, of course, and Die Hard, the great, the late great rest in peace, Mr. Alan Erkman. Durden. That brings us to the French Dispatch. All right, guys. I have, uh, I've, 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 I have some I have some honorable, two honorable mentions. mentions and my person. I have I have a few honorable mentions and a tie. I'll just start. Wes Anderson always brings the best out of everyone. Can we agree on that? Going oh. forward. No, oh, okay. Uh even if I will say that Wes Anderson always brings the best out of everyone. Even if they are only on the screen for a moment, it typically is not wasted. Typically mm. is not wasted. It makes for a very difficult scene stealers. One, because it's such an ensemble of talent, all bringing their best with great material, with great material and uh, typically in small doses that just leave you wanting more. I'll say I was disappointed on how underutilized Willem Dafoe was in this. He was the standout in Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, so he, he's so good at being over the top. Uh, he was just kind of a mute in this, which was a little bit of a letdown. The standouts for me, my honorable mentions, were uh, Timothy Chalamet I'm sorry, what was and Tilda Swinton. Sort of tried to fuck me. In that order, because mm -hmm. they were, even when they weren't making me crack up, they were still uh, very, int very interesting to watch. They put on great performances, so I'll leave it with that. I've got, I've got two um, scene stealers that I can't choose between. Okay, all right. So my honorable mentions were. It's, I feel like it's fair, but it's not fair. Clearly, Bill Murray did his thing. I mean, I love. Bill. I have three honorable mentions now. Bill Murray, definitely honorable mention here. Don't cry in my office. Uh, Benicio del Toro, honorable mention as well. Yeah, honorable mention. Honorable mention. That's one. Benice Del Toro and uh, you just say something. No, you, you don't try to put. To, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Hear me. Can board. you hear me? Can you? Can I? No, I let wrong, you do wrong I, segment. I let you do yours. I haven't I, even done mine. You've done your honorable mentions. I'm just saying. I'm in honorable mentions. I'm just. I am in honorable okay, mentions. I'm just saying. I think this will resolve everything. I think okay. it was important for I, me to I, say I, it I, you, you. No, no, because we got to give the fans the truth and the honesty. Okay, and of course. My number one honorable mention is Tilda Swinton. Fuck me. Because she did such an outstanding job. I mean, this is really, to be honest with you, I didn't even know she had the comedic chops in her. Like, she literally had me bust not laughing, crying. The words she, it was, it was, I just feel like if you had been introduced to this Tilda Swinton first, you'd have a much more appreciation for her. You've seen Burn After Reading, right? No. I believe we talked about it. Oh, no. Uh, no yeah. With Brad the, uh, Pitt yeah, yeah, just, yes, face, yes. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was hilarious in that as the uh, cold hearted bitch of a wife. Yeah. But not. This was funny. Funny. Yeah. I this agree. was like and she was already funny before she said, where's my drink? Mm. I'm like, oh, shit. Now that, that weird, like, wooden. Laconic, she yeah. Had going on, she walked in front of the state. He fucked me. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah. She, she, she. Almost. I'm not gonna lie to you. I was being funny at first when I said we we're gonna use her and she go back. I, I was literally that close until I then came up with. I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. My scene stiller for this, and I'll, I'll reserve the right to go ahead and just say why. Uh, and then I, I don't know if we're gonna have to flip or whatnot. My scene stiller for this was Jeffrey Knight. Jeffrey Knight to me. I'm sorry, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wright. I'm right. I'm sorry, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. Torture. Uh, Jeffrey Wright for me. 
what he did with this because again he came in the third act and at this point you had so many heavy hitters, and i took all this in consideration you had so many heavy hitters in this film who were doing their thing doing their thing doing this thing and then i looked at you and then when they do bring you on scene you're on scene with leave shiver so it's not like you got this one moment to shine by yourself so only thing you like the moment he he was his presence was so strong from his voice to then seeing him tell that story with Leif Shabra, then seeing him acting with every, so I saw you in three different elements. I heard your voice over Prowlis, I saw you on set, and I saw you in the film. And at that point, I had already seen everyone else's performances, and again, I'm like, you're up against it, because now we've been watching this movie for an hour and 20 minutes, we're just meeting this character, and he captivated me. Mm -hmm. His And his story, really, he had to bring all three of the stories together, and it was this, and of course that, and like that, to, I was just impressed along of him mesmer, memorizing those that, I felt like he knew all all those words and he made you believe every single thing and not to mention his acting was good in it so for me it came from left field you came in at the last minute of the movie i already had tilda swinton as who i was going to say it was while i was watching it because she had me dying and then he comes in he's not a funny guy it's just his again his voice his presence his demeanor his not to be thrown off by anything and he for, he killed it for me man jeffrey Jeff, jeffrey Wright for me man okay so my tie was between Adrian Brody and Benicio Del Toro. Surprise, surprise. Hmm. Um, they were both equally great in such different ways. Benicio Del Toro did so much, making it look so effortless and nonchalant. Uh, so much emotion conveyed behind every subtle stone face, and he somehow makes that work. It doesn't seem like he's just phoning it in. Um, Adrian Brody is the exact polar opposite, dancing around every scene, moving every muscle on his face with his over-the-top expressions and exploring the entire frame, putting an exhausting amount of energy and enthusiasm into every line he gives. Uh, they're great on their own, and it's even more magical, their dynamic, when they share the screen together. So for me, it was a tie between Adrian and Benicio, but... I will say that you make a very fine case for Jeffrey Wright because uh, I've seen him in um, Westworld. He's one of my favorite characters in that because he is just a really great actor and uh, he can convey this like mourning almost in his performance that's really... I didn't want to say anything, but you also didn't get him down as one of the Marvel characters because he plays the voice of the Watcher in Marvel's What If series. I was going to save that towards the end in case I needed some a few more bonus points. So that would have been six waiting on seven, not five waiting on six, but it's okay. Um, I, I, I I will agree. I will concede to uh, to Jeffrey Wright. And because, not only that, could you be honest? He's really one of the most underrated no, actors I mean, out there. I, Adrian Brody and... Um, Those are fine choices. Adrian Brody fine. and Benicio Del Toro, they made me laugh more than anybody else. But for an overall performance, yeah, Jeffrey Wright brought the more um, emotionally grounded, powerful, with doing less with more performance. And that he also made man. me laugh quite a few times. Yeah. So he brought, and and there, uh, Adrian Brody's and Benicio Del Toro's acting were great too, but it was more like, it was there, what I enjoyed about uh, their scenes was more anecdotal. Mm -hmm. Like anybody, really could have With it was talent. what was happening in right. the scene more so than who it was happening to or how they were responding to it with Jeffrey cool. Wright he, he, he was the scene he was yeah he had, and he had some pretty mundane moments like as far as on the page goes but he took them and 
Yeah, he was a pleasure to watch. I'd say, yeah, I agree. Jeffrey Man, Wright. Out of nowhere, too. Hey, Jeffrey Wright. What talking about coming out of nowhere? Hey, I torture. I, Jeffrey White guy. Hey, welcome to the board. You're so underrated, man. And thank you for being the voice of the watcher. All right, it is time for cast, crew, or you. Laura Perriette works within various roles within the camera department, from cinematographer to assistant camera to B camera operator, central loader, her role in The French Dispatch, and a handful of others. Now, we're so curious to dig into the mechanics of what literally makes the films we love and hear and give a fresh perspective on the production process from her unique vantage point. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today, ma'am. And you look elegant and your lighting is awesome. Let's talk about The French Dispatch. Now, you were the central loader for the film. Again, that role's definition seems to run parallel with second assistant camera and camera loader, at least from what we've read. Is that right? And if not, please elaborate. No, it's not. Dirty, yeah, how dare you? We are on the same level, If, but I, my specialty is uh, to deal with the, all the, the film stock. It's a very hard part also because on this French dispatch, it was, a, it was a very high responsibility and I was very pleased to be called for this movie. It was a uh, particularly for me because I was started to to be first AC. So when I was called, I was in Morocco doing a, a movie on the as first AC, and and Vincent Scotté, the the focus puller on the movie, called me and and uh, and proposed me this this movie. I was wow, yeah. <laughs> Of course, I'm doing it. I will doing this movie with you because it's uh, it's like a, a dream come true to to work with this kind of director. It's uh, it's it's such it's such it's huge. It was uh, one of my uh, most uh, beautiful experience for everything. Uh, I read. We'll definitely in just a moment get into the the specifics of what what your job entailed and and what that looked like for you on a daily basis but I'm I'm curious about like the in between moments when uh, cuz I, I read that uh the production like Wes Anderson and the the uh location scout and they pretty much found a small town in France that they just they just kind of set up shop there completely and um most of the production crew the actors all just kind of stayed there like an adult sleepaway camp for the duration of the production, living, working, eating together. Uh, was that your experience? And or or can you expand on that at all? I think we was a uh, six six hundred people working on the on the on the show on the film. So it was a huge. So we mostly we. All the crew was on town on the different apartment and um, the main crew, the production director and all the actor was uh, not really at uh, 15 minutes from town, but otherwise all the all the crew was in town uh, in se uh, split it uh, in all uh, in all town. That's really cool. So you kind of like set up just yeah. almost like an extended family for the production. 
fantasy camp for yeah. filmmakers. Yeah. It feels good. Let me ask you this. Now, you've been on a ton of production sets. Let me ask you this. But specifically to the French Dispatch, what was an average day on set like being there com compared to where all the other sets you've been on? It was very intense because I, um, I, I central loader, I wasn't uh, allowed to, to be on the set. Because Wes Anderson, uh, he likes to work with, um, even it's a huge production with a huge set, he likes to shoot like a, a short movie. So he wants nobody on sets who are not uh, working or allowed to be on set. Even, even the hard department uh, wasn't on set. There was always... Um, uh, far behind and if we need to do some uh, uh, makeup uh, readjustment we, we call them to, to come on set but so it won't very nobody on set and I was on a little uh, little truck that I manage and I have a lot of video and picture and um, I put all my my uh, my, change, my tent my changing bag um on the car and I was doing, uh, I, I, I was uh, passing all my day in the, in the car doing uh, loading, loading. <laughs> and I have uh, one runner who was, uh, bring, uh, who was bringing the, the mag on, uh, on set. To load the film in the camera, is the camera coming back to you or are you going to the camera? No. I was lo loading the mag in the truck and um, and and breathing. Uh, and when it, it it was time to reload, uh, at this time I will uh, I was able to come on set to bring the mag. Uh, and the first AC uh, was doing the loop, and then I put it the rush to my uh, to my truck was uh, was um, outside the, the studio. But on sets, uh, there, there, I have uh, a lot of uh, full mag uh, ready to be uh, loaded. Is it like every five minutes you're going in there or is there some like like 20 minutes, 30 minutes because they're setting up the next shot or something like that? Like No, it's every five minutes I need uh, I needed to 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 go in because uh, um, I, um, I have I had a few magazine. But not not a lot. So you have to um, you have to reload all the time because uh, if you wait uh, too much, after that you can be um, you can be uh, in a rush. Yeah, come on! I feel the magic happening. Let's go! Like, oh shit! Hold on! Hold where's, on! Where's the magic? Uh, that, um, <laughs> one of my favorite shots of the movie is the uh, the one looking down on Moses and Simone when they're when he proposes to her. Uh, I love the way it it kept like juxtaposing on that shot. And I, I, I think I saw a I saw a picture on your Instagram that looked like it could have been the setup for that shot. It was the the camera was kind of hanging, looking looking down. Is that is that yeah. right? I kind of assumed that it was either done practically or it, the the way I would have done it is just got it wide enough to get both of them, and then did a one eighty in post um, on it. But you do everything is uh, in real, so. 
we we've done a lot of uh, the special effect uh, we we've done all is in real so it was very impressive to do it to to see it because uh, um Wes, Wes Anderson was doing the timing he was counting and one two and every every everybody was a part uh, very uh, important and it, if 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 someone wasn't on the on the good timing, uh, it was it was uh, uh, we start back one because uh, so. But he's uh, he like to have a control on everything, uh, and um, he do he do it uh, all in real. The sequence shot with the mm-hmm. um, with the dolly. It was amazing to see to see all the grip doing the doing the movement because it was so impressive and that was uh, for me the the most interesting interesting part because uh, he's working with the, the same grip as a long time ago and uh, he's an in, he's Indian. Um, and uh, he's a amazing, amazing grip doing a lot of. Uh, uh, he's an engineer, so that's why Wes Anderson want him ev- on on its uh, each movie because uh, he's uh, he's very very impressive. Okay, and with that being said, let me ask you this. Do you have a favorite memory from the production? Maybe not anything technical, maybe uh, uh, someone you worked with or something you saw or something maybe that inspired you? Yes, uh, the, the DP, Robert Yeoman. I really l- love it to to see him work, work because uh, he was uh, so calm. He knew exactly what he was doing, um, Always having a, a good energy, and uh, it was very peace, peaceful to to see him. He know very well uh, Wes Anderson, and uh, so we always um, he always have a, a step um, uh, forward, you know. So it was a very uh, reconfortant, and uh, he had the. Uh, to see him doing the great uh, in- light install- installation and uh, to be so so kind, uh, it's a uh, it's a real pleasure because it's not uh, it's not easy on this kind of uh, production um, who is uh, very uh, stressful with the with the all the problem you can have. Uh, so no, no, it was uh, it was great, and uh, then and the production producer um, Oct- Octavia and uh, and Jason was uh, was uh, was also amazing because um, I was uh, always um, in in deal with the production to manage uh, the the film stock because uh, all the film was coming from uh, United States and to come to make it come in France uh, it was uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't easy so so we always uh, and we 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 footage a lot a lot a lot so I was uh, 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 in very close collaboration with them and uh, 
and uh, it was very very cool because I feel it like uh, we were a team, you know. Yeah. So it's very important because some in film you can have some stress because um, we we were shooting in uh, in um, in black and white and in uh, in color and um, the film in black and white was uh, was uh, a very big deal because uh, to make it uh, to make it real it's uh, it's three it's uh, three weeks of um, working process. So before the shoot, it was a very uh, at the, at the beginning uh, it was more in color and a small part in black and white. And very soon, uh, Wes Anderson decided to to shoot more in black and white because uh, he really loved the texture and. Uh, and the, the quality and the, the contrast. So he decided to to shoot uh, both scene uh, in color and in black and white. Uh, there's so many, much more that I'd love to ask you about this, but I know we're running short on time. Um, we're going to move on from the Friends Dispatch. Before we do, um, I just want to leave it up to you if there's anything else that you think uh, fans of the film would find interesting that we haven't covered. And uh, for specifically myself, I'm just curious. I'm, I don't know if you have the number in your head or a roundabout, but I, I'd really love to know uh, how many feet of film went w- was burned on the French Dispatch to, to make something that amazing. What What's the... what's the From, here, if, to, from here to Yuma. And if that's proprietary <laughs> information, I completely understand. The, the entire uh, film it was uh it was uh it was crazy uh i think it was more or less around uh, three thousand wow she's zero, testing zero, you zero. you should know because she told you if i'm not mistaken i, I did I'm, I'm i paid attention so if this is the recap portion of the interview she said about a thousand feet of film gets you about five minutes so if you know the running time of well the, film, uh, I, the running well have we we made movies before we know that the running time does not equate to the time. raw footage <laughs> <laughs> that's not that simple okay give or take about another hour or two it was a lot some days Per day, uh, my average was, uh, I was doing um, between 35 and 40 um, rolls per day of uh, 100, uh, 100 foot. So it was like, uh, it was, it was huge. Was there anything else that you wanted to uh, share about the uh, French Dispatch production before we moved on? No, it was a it was a, an amazing shot, and it was very interesting to see uh, how Wes Anderson was uh, dealing all the all the the big industry because when we were shooting, it 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 looks like it looks like a, a, sh- a short movie. It's a, mm-hmm. it looks like a, f- a friend. Uh, a very good friend who are doing a movie. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. We truly, truly appreciate you making Thank the time you. out. Oh, Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. All right, guys. Hopefully no one in our audience has diabetes because we got a little sweet treat for you. Durden and Mr. Rory went actually out on location. So, guys, if you've ever seen Real Sex, this is the movie version of it. Durden, take us to Sunray. All right, we just got done watching the French Dispatch. 
Live. Right. Sunray Cinema. We're live. This was your first Wes Anderson film, right? That's that a lie. Seen? What the fuck are you doing? No, right. no. So, ha- okay. So, have you have you seen uh, Bottle Rocket? No. Uh, World Tenenbaums? Yes. You oh. made, no, you made me watch that years ago. The sweatsuit, Ben, ben Stiller. Because okay. it was Ben Stiller, yes. Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. No. Fantastic Mr. Fox. No. Darjeeling Limited. No. Isle of Dogs. Royal Tenenbaums. Okay. All right. So this is the second Wes Anderson. Yes. Film. Okay. So I'm going to reserve my fucks given because I want to know what you thought first. I, was, I first want to say that I want to give, um, I want to, cinematography wise, the film gets, the film gets an A+. Uh, I really love that this film was not scared to take chances. Uh, I really love that this film really just didn't give a fuck about what anybody thought and really want to tell its own story. What's going on here? I'm just getting my calculator open. You don't need your calculator because I calculated what score this film should get in my fucks given. And what I'm telling you guys is out of five fucks, I'm going to give this film three fucks. What? I'm sorry. It's mine or yours. Who's who's on this? I just saw it with you, right? Thanks. I'm sorry. It has some background noise there. With that being said, uh, I'm going to give this film three fucks because I'm coming from the person that maybe hasn't seen a Wes Anderson film from that perspective. The film at times was lulling. However, even uh, with... I'm sorry. Uh, I, keep, no, I keep hearing uh, no, some I'm sorry. I just want to stop you right there. We're lulling where? When? What point? The film was lulling and it, at certain times it got more artistic than it, did, than, it, than it did film worthy. I'm just being honest with you. There are a lot of artistic moments in that. Visual wise, I love the fucking film. I'm going to tell you that. But as far as if you're asking me out of five fucks, I'm going to give this film three. The writing, I would give I would give uh, you know, A through F. I would give the writing a B, a strong strong B. Acting wise, A plus. A plus to write. Acting was immense. Cinematography immense. Again, pacing is where we have an issue. But at the same time, like I say, all in all, if you are an artistic fan, if you really love film, this is a film for you. But if you're just an average film watcher, don't come see this. I'm just being honest with you. I really love film, so I enjoyed it. But if you need explosions, sex, not soft porn, but sex and intrigue, this isn't for you. But if you love The Great Gatsby, uh, Eternals, um, anything that's visually aesthetic, this film's for you guys. Okay. Dave, take it away. I couldn't agree with you less. Thank you. Quote from the film. This The pacing, what the fuck? The pacing is like the best part about that. That's one of my notes that I have. That's one of the best thing about every Wes Anderson movie is that well, one, it's meticulous. Like every little thing in the shot is there for a reason. And, and there's so much thought put into every single frame. But then like just the, on the meticulousness of it, you think about work. You think about the Foley and how much goes into the Foley. Like if you listen to the Foley, it's not natural Foley. There's like it's kind of like over exaggerated. And there's even a rhythm to the Foley and the rhythm in the Foley adheres to the rhythm in the the little the score that's that's, that's I'm fine with all of seen. The beats and the dialogue is adhering to the same rhythm. Like when you talk about pacing, you can literally go one, two, three, four, one, two, three. And to my four. point, and if I can do that, can I finish? Yes. Can I ha- shit is happening on the beat like perfectly like. The, the movie plays like a song. How is that? How can you say that it doesn't? Because that, every song doesn't go one, two, three for some songs like jazz. You get some jazz in it. I, I do. I get a lot. in. Listen, you're making it seem like I'm saying that I'm I get because a three is an insult. A three this. is not an insult. A three is again, French connection. A French word that we can use is we. And if we had an opinion as two people, so you apparently really love it. So why don't you tell the fans how many fucks you give it? Like we don't already well, know. Uh, I will. I will uh, 
This isn't the episode, remember. This is Foxgiving. My favorite Wes Anderson movie is Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. For the longest time, number two has been The Royal Tenenbaums. This would take the place of The Royal Tenenbaums. I would say that it is the best Wes Anderson film that he's ever done. Not Still not my go-to because Bill Murray is all over Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. So I mean, he's all over this, too. Not he's, he's the, He is the lead. He is Steve oh, okay. Zissou. Okay, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha, you. So gotcha. that, that one, it's going to be really hard to beat. But as far as, like, this was Wes Anderson at his finest. And the coolest thing about it was that it was unapologetically Wes Anderson. Like, he leaned into everything that makes his movies great a little bit more and expanded on them like with the animation and the still frame shots that he like he he took he took his own style and added to it where i I was fearful that because a lot of people are starting to like turn on oh it's so cliche to like wes anderson i was thinking that maybe he would fall victim to that like narrative out there and lean away from himself more towards something a little bit safer but i was so happy to see that he leaned into everything that made him great and just made it even better to where you can't even argue the artistry of what he's doing and then and then the other thing that i loved about it was that not only did it go back to his roots as far as what makes his films great on a great on a technical level it also brought back all of the great uh the actors that he worked with a lot of them that you haven't seen since his earlier movies like owen wilson and then you got jason Schwartzman in there and he hasn't been in for a long time uh owen wilson and then you have edward norton coming back uh like yeah it was i as a wes anderson fan was 100 percent satisfied from the first frame until the credits rolled i thought it was perfect i couldn't think of anything that i would possibly change about it i would give this uh five because it's perfect. All right, guys. There you have so it. You, so you give it a three. Or you don't uh, have to do the math on that. Three and a five is an eight. eight. Divided by two is a four. So, all right. We, uh, we, 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 we give uh, French Dispatch uh, four fucks collectively. My five to his insulting. And if, and if last, on a signing off I'm note. I remember this one. I, know, I want you to fucking remember this. On a signing off note, Maybe. he said he wouldn't change anything. There's one thing I would change. And, and this is the same thing I would have changed about Zombieland. Bill Murray doesn't die, bitch. All right, throw it back to Durden and Royal. Thank you very much, uh, Durden and Royal on the street. Appreciate those, uh, those words. What the fuck with the three? I mean, hey. Anyway. Nine is the number of completion, and three is the square root of nine. Let's get into coming attractions. All right. We are in the final stretch of season three of That's the Fucking Trailer. And uh, here's what we have in store for you for the remainder of this season. February, we're going to be doing Being There. In March, Blades of Glory. Yeah, my birthday's coming up. I invited you by wearing your skin. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah, I hope you've seen the movie because that'd be very funny to you. All right, then uh, April, we're going to dial it down and get serious and cover face off. And by serious, he means not serious at fucking all. <laughs> In May, we're going to the critically acclaimed Dead Presidents. My first time viewing that film. It won't be his last. And then uh, in June, we'll do our traditional season recap of uh, all things season three before we figure out what the hell we're doing after that. That's uh, that's the rest of this season. Thank you very much for watching. Uh, be sure to check out The French Dispatch. If we time this right, it should be coming out available uh, on streaming and on demand and stuff like that. 
Um, and uh, you know how to say goodbye in French? Bye. Goodbye, 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 goodbye. Why don't you subscribe? It'll last longer.